Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, kudos to the city of Hamilton for coming up with innovative ideas to get our patios open, like expanding them onto the street. Canada has put a lot of effort into a UN Security Council seat. Is it worth it? What is the vaccination timeline for COVID-19? Is a vaccine as close as we think? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Pretty exciting things happening in the city, especially as we enter stage two coming up this Friday. And, you know, when I first heard of this and the counselors that were moving forward on this, uh, I thought, wow, this is thinking outside the box and good for them. And uh, basically what this involves is uh, certain areas around the city. Some areas are, are perfect, for the, uh, perfect for this. Others, you just simply can't do it. But where you can, why not? And the city of Hamilton is uh, going to be closing King William Street to car access for a pandemic, uh, pandemic patio experience. Uh, and basically, you can't be inside, and those that don't really have adequate patios are very small. Now they're getting a chance to expand those onto the street. Uh, what a great idea. Uh, let's bring in uh, Jason Cassie's uh, Equal Parts Hospitality and is with us now. Jason, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks, Scott. I am. I am excited. And tell everybody what Equal Parts Hospitality is. Uh, Equal Parts Hospitality is a, a hospitality management company. We manage uh, golf courses, restaurants, uh, first hotels opening in September. Um, you know, various things like that. We do some. Uh, we do event space management as well. Um, yeah, that's Equal Parts. How did you get involved? How did you get involved in this discussion? Uh, this discussion, I had picked up on a couple of European companies that were. Um, or countries moving in this direction. And Jason Thorne, I guess at the same time, had also seen something similar. And he gave me a call and discussed the viability of it for King William. And uh, it started with Jason Thorne. We then uh, brought in the BIA and discussed how the BIA might be able to operate a uh, a patio out on the street and, and what that would look like. And we discussed other parts of the city uh, that, you know, may or may not be uh, applicable to such a program. And uh, we identified multiple spots within the city and uh, they needed to sort of pilot it to, to, to work the kinks out. King William was uh, was the first. And um, and that's how it happened. And then Councillor Farr, of course, stepped up and uh, pushed it through council for all the right reasons. Yeah, great to see Councillor Farr jump on this. Uh, this truly is, I think, a, a great idea. So tell us what's in store for King William. Tell us what the proposals are here. So basically what we're doing is the first block of King William between James and Houston will be shut entirely every day from 9 a.m. until 11 p.m. So effectively, if you imagine how large a street is, so in this case, the street's over 200 feet long, and you can put tables down the middle of the street. So we're allowing the sidewalks to grow by virtue of not seating the tables right up against the curb so that on both sides, people who are trying to physically distance from one another can do so uh, by virtue of stepping off the curb onto the road. And, and at the same time, there'll be diners down the middle of the road that will provide in, you know, the most needed capacity expansion for restaurants. Because, Scott, if you think about how difficult it would be for some patios, you know, think about King William. There are patios there that only have four tables to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. So if all of a sudden you want to go to a, one of your favorite bistros or one of your favorite restaurants, there may only be one or two tables on those patios. Well, you can't rehire a chef and rehire a manager and, and, you know, get lots of food going in your kitchen and staff up with that kind of capacity. So what we really require, what every restaurant in this city requires, is excess capacity right now. So it's summertime, uh, and now is the time to do it. So is this, for, for example, King William, is this one giant space that's operated by the BIA and then various restaurants come in and get a piece of this as opposed to one establishment doing this? Or would it vary depending on what part of the city it's in? 
Well, I think that will vary based on each unique situation in the city. Specific to King William, we asked the BIA to lead this, the BIA led it. And what we've determined is basically that out front of each restaurant, there'll be additional tables. In the instance where the second block doesn't quite capture all of the restaurants, we're including them in the first block as well, so they can seat tables there. For the time being, it looks like each restaurant will get an additional 16 to 20 seats, which is absolutely amazing, um, which is, is just so wonderful to be able to have that kind of capacity expansion. Because if you look at uh, one of our own restaurants, the French, as an example, we normally have seating for 26 to 28 people on the patio, and we're going to be down to 14 or 15 people. So having that, that extra capacity really goes a long way to bringing people back to work. Um, yeah, so that's that's how that will work. Uh, Jason, I'm sure this is designed with survival in mind, but could this be an attraction? Oh, there's no doubt it's an attraction. But having said that, we have to be careful. The idea isn't to, yeah. you know, light light it up as an attraction to the point where it feels like Mardi it's, Gras. That is, all of a sudden, it's like be- super crawl. Yeah. yeah, that would be completely irresponsible at this time, and I would I would uh, discourage that from happening. So, in the case of our restaurants, we are we are uh, you know reservation only for those tables. We've tightened the table times. Typically, if you go to the French, you might have two hours to dine, and now you're going to have an hour and a half. So, and we're going to be a little bit stickier about getting that table back. Typically, is that the sort of is that the sort of information you tell diners when they arrive? Oh, for sure. Yeah, That's all yeah. going to be communicated in the reservation because, quite frankly, if we can turn a table twice, that's great. But if we can turn a table three times, we're probably profitable. So, and, and that's key again to bringing people back and getting people back to work and, and getting the city back to feeling normal again. Yeah, you know? I think this I mean, is. I think this time? is. I know. I, I think this is an absolutely fabulous idea, and I think you're really on to something here, even post-COVID-19. One question, uh, because there's always going to be uh, those that, that are upset with this. Uh, I'll play devil's advocate here. What about emergency services and the ability to get the street reopened if it needs to be? So this, the street is not shut permanently. All the tables and chairs are movable. Um, there are sidewalks on both sides of the street. There's parking lots. There are delivery drop-off and loading zones on uh, the opposing streets of, like, Houston, James, John. So there is plenty. And with respect to, uh, you know, police, fire, ambulance, they're all right there within a block. So it, it, I, King William is definitely the right the right location to pilot this. Yeah, it, it is a perfect place when you think about the geography uh, down there. When is this going to happen? Give us the details. Sure. This starts this Friday, and you'll be able to come down to King William, and you will be able to uh, sit at one of 10 restaurants that will be operating. Uh, outdoor, patio only. You will be able to use the washrooms inside, uh, one at a time, of course. For safety and um, and we you know we really look forward to having everyone Friday and and seeing this this pilot all the way through the fall until the end of September. Uh, we are in for an incredible few days as we head into the weekend weatherwise, Jason. Uh, what happens if too many show up? If if too many people show up? Yeah, yeah. Are you are you considering that? Um, I, I'm not sure what to do if too many people come up. I mean, the whole point of being outside and having public realm is that there is capacity to expand into sidewalks and into parking lots and onto roads. So the increased capacity is wonderful. Um, Not speaking for all the other restaurants, but you won't be able to queue up at our restaurant because we're not taking uh, walk-ins per se unless we have availability. So, so again, will this I will the heard, can you see the majority of this being restaurant pre-booked only? I can see it probably being 50/50, Scott. I could see some places doing um reservation and some places places doing walk-in. It depends on the type of restaurant, right? So is this the pilot down on King William and the rest uh you talked about many other sites that were that people were looking at uh both uh, lower city and upper city uh any idea when those may come to fruition or is this all based on what happens with King William Um I think I 
think it isn't based on what happens with King William. I think it would be more a function of city staff getting, um, you know, getting behind these ideas. Like as an example, when you think of the suburbs, there's absolutely no reason not to spill into parking lots in the suburbs. I mean, most parking lots are completely overbuilt to begin with. Yeah. So I think as a matter of fact, I think developers really need to have a good look at their parking lots and, and planners really need to have a good look at their planning policies around parking lots. Let's create some more public realm. Let's create some more green space. Just because you live on the mountain doesn't mean that your restaurant shouldn't have a really cool vibe or a, or a, or a sense of place within that parking lot. You know, So I, I encourage all restaurant owners and, and all people in the hospitality sector to, to push City Hall to think outside the box. That's how this happened. So if they think out of the box and we end up in a better place as a city, then if it took a pandemic to get here, what the heck? Why not? You know, we talk often on this show, Jason, about what life will be like post-COVID-19. You could, and people who are involved in this, could be taking a giant step forward in changes that we see moving forward even post-COVID-19. This could really innovate the business, couldn't it? Oh, it it sure could. You know, between delivery, pickup, and and full service dining not to mention you know give credit where credits where credits do doug ford or the the premier ford and the and the provincial government you know loosening the liquor laws finally this has been decades and decades in the making there's been no reason not to have a looser policy around alcohol such as licensing patios and things like that it just got so tight for so long I think finally that uh, both the AGCO and the province, and it's not just the it's not just the conservatives. It's been every every government has tried to some degree, but for whatever reason, again, it took a pandemic to loosen up people's attitudes around survival and around what what really is bad for us or good for us. Certainly, putting a little table out out front of your restaurant that may or may not have a liquor license attached to it, and ha- and someone having a beer or a glass of wine. The, the sky will not fall as a result of that. So, I so think- Jason, just to, we've only got a couple of seconds left here. So, Jason, mm-hmm. if people are interested in participating in this this weekend, King William Street opening up as of Friday, what should they do? Do they just come down or do they call and, and make reservations with the various restaurants? What should they do? I suggest that they call the restaurants on King William, whether that's the Mule or Berkeley North or the French or the Diplomat or Hamburger you know, those key restaurants that have capacity down there. And I think, you know, there's also Bread Bar, there's Uncle Ray's on James Street. They're going to be offering something as well. So I think the best thing to do is to call the restaurant to determine whether or not they're taking reservations. All right. Uh, Jason Cassies has been with us. Uh, Equal Parts Hospitality. City of Hamilton thinking outside the box. And kudos to the BIA and Councillor Farr for uh, for being involved in this as they close King William Street this weekend for a pandemic patio expansion. But please call your favorite establishment first. Jason, thanks for the time. Good luck with this. Thank you, Scott. The future of Supercrawl, um, kind of what we suspected has happened. Tim Potasik is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am great. Thank you very much for asking. How are you? I know I'm doing well. I know this Good. was a uh, something that uh, the organizers have been have been throwing around for several weeks uh, now. How did you finally arrive at this decision? Uh, you must be heartbroken. Uh, well, I mean, we were hanging on for as long as we could, hoping that um, you know the phases would happen faster and watching what the you know province and federal government were mandating. So you know, ultimately. We waited as long as we could before we knew we had to make a decision to uh, cancel the actual physical event outside. So, yeah, it, it really is hard. We've canceled everything we've been involved in this year, so it's um, starting to get me down, I'll be honest. But we, we are still very optimistic, and we sort of added to that message that our optimism is that we feel like we'll still be able to do things in the spirit of what Supercrawl was in you know, smaller spaces, uh, you know, with uh, uh, reduced capacities and restrictions based around, you know, wherever the COVID restrictions lie in the late fall. So, 
Uh, obviously, this is and events like these take a long time to plan and therefore have to be uh, have to be rescheduled, uh, you know, months in advance in order to to uh, to, to save schedules and, and money and deposits and, and this sort of thing. Is there a plan B? Have you been thinking of, you know, if it doesn't happen, what we can do or does that process start now? Uh, no. Well, I mean, that's part of this uh I mean, the cancellation was, you know, became inevitable ultimately. Like it didn't, like we were thinking maybe we could move, but like even moving doesn't seem like it's, yeah. you know, putting tens of thousands of people on the street together doesn't seem like a smart uh, thing to do or something that anybody would allow us to even consider. So we are looking at doing some smaller uh, free events um, throughout late, late fall into Christmas and into the first quarter of next year. So we're giving ourselves some time um, and, you know, COVID some time to work itself through and see where the restrictions lie. And uh, also, we're still in the process of, like, raising some money to be able to do some socially distanced uh, shows. So basically, we're going to work on that over the summer, put the plan into place. And then we're looking at, in September, announcing uh, a potential series of shows that would be free to the public. Uh, first come, first serve. They would be ticketed. They would be socially distanced. They would be in unique locations, some that we've used before throughout the city. Um, we would want to book as many of the artists that we had booked for Supercrawl in all, you know, all of the genres, not just music, but potentially put together a vendor market that, you know, has restricted capacity, put together a fashion show that has restricted capacity and work with all, uh, the teams of people that we've already committed to, like we had booked almost everything was booked this year for Supercross. So we're going to slowly go back to people uh, one by one and see what we can pull together based on the budget that we've got um, to spend and hopefully offer something to the city that's not the same, but uh, offer free shows to the public that they, you know, that's in the spirit of what we would normally do. Um, uh, obviously we know how much, uh, super crawl encompasses the whole city and it, it's, uh, 250,000, uh, people last year. Um, we've heard today this week, them, uh, city council has been talking about, uh, opening up patios for some restaurants, extending them into the street. We're hearing word that there's going to be the pilot project this Friday and Saturday for King William, where those restaurants get to, uh, uh, set up a patio on, on the, uh, on the closed off street. Does that provide any sort of optimism at all moving forward? Absolutely. I mean, I'm one of the most optimistic people, so, uh, Within our group, we have the optimists and the pessimists, but we all work well together and we're trying to mm-hmm. do and, and look at these things and hopefully as they roll out, they're not going to have issues and then everything else will roll out quickly behind it. Is this one, you know, we, we were talking about uh, earlier on with uh, guests in regard to the King William uh, uh, pilot project that they're going to try this weekend. Uh, is there any thought that something positive might come out of this, Tim? Something completely different that you never thought of as a result of you having to adapt to COVID-19? You know, I, I, we, we were talking uh, earlier in regard to uh, expanding King William and COVID or not. This is a great idea, period. Are you thinking this could change things moving forward? Uh, absolutely. I think there'll be definitely some cha- change that gets adopted during COVID that will work into the future. Um, there'll be some things that people try that work now that won't work into the future. Ultimately, I believe that people will be um, engaged and things will get back to normal in a relatively reasonable amount of time. Like if there's a, obviously if there's a vaccine, then it's, you know, things will get back to business very quickly um, once that happens. But in the meantime, once we get back to business, socially distanced, whether we're wearing masks and we're in groups and they're, you know, outbreaks or whatever you would want to call them, there's still going to be people that are going to get sick from this. But ultimately, you know, at this point, I think we have to get on with it, um, in my opinion anyway. And I think there's ways to do it that are reasonable and manageable for the public and of course there's people on the fringes that are going to be affected that need to be extra careful um but the general public i think you know we probably can get back to business i would hope relatively soon 
uh, it's very challenging for us, obviously, in arts and culture and our live side of our business is like, you know, two thirds to three quarters of our entire livelihood. Um, and the other part of our livelihood is contingent on those live things as well. So it's really mm. challenging um, from that perspective. But we're, again, very hopeful and still holding out for late fall that things will kind of get back to not normal, but some kind of normal and we can execute some things. And we've got some ideas around, you know, we're absolutely going to uh, incorporate the live streaming element of what people are doing during COVID sort of times mm. on the live side into our live performance elements. So we're going to look at adding live streams into uh, live concerts but also add a streaming element where people could potentially buy a ticket to a streamed show. They don't necessarily have to go. Um, maybe that's something that works into the mm. future. We, we look at it from a perspective of even if it doesn't work into the future, if we can afford to continue to film and develop this content, it's something that we could package and use later on uh, for promotion and marketing, and it's a valuable thing regardless. Tim Potasik has been with us, co-owner Sonic Onion and organizer of Supercrawl. Uh, sad news, uh, not running this year under the normal uh, circumstances, but we'll see some sort of abbreviated version, hopefully to get some sort of celebration in, uh, but back bigger and stronger than ever in 2021. Tim, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with all of this. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, Canada is waiting to hear whether it's uh, whether our four-year effort to get a seat on the UN Security Council has been successful uh, up against Norway and Ireland for one of two open seats. To talk more about all of this, Shubaloy Majumdar is with us, Senior Fellow and Program Director at uh, McDonald Laurie Institute Centre for Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad and is with us now. Shubaloy, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing well. Thanks for having me. How are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Uh, so talk about this seat. Uh, it's a temporary seat. Uh, I guess our term is for two years. Why is this important to Canada? You know, I struggle to answer that question every day of the week. <laughs> I, uh, there That's are why three, I'm asking. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> listen, there are three uh, candidates for two temporary seats. Uh, that puts us against Ireland and Norway for uh in a competition for that seat and typically the 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 way you campaign for this seat is by um tempering what you really think about global affairs and and national interests um you dole out huge gobs of money and strange kinds of commitments uh with uh the special pet projects of any particular leader around the world some are more unsavory than others uh, it's a secret ballot and you get an outcome where you sit on a seat for two years where you have very little effect or impact in global affairs. So I have a very negative view about the utility of the UN Security Council and, if, and its efficacy. And I think that's borne out with how, um, how difficult it has been for multilateralism in the, number, in the last number of years. Um, the, three that, the three candidates are Ireland, uh, Norway, and Canada. And it seems to be looking from the outside in that Norway started this campaign a decade ago, as did Ireland. Um, Norway has a pretty good uh, lock in terms of the relationships that they've bolstered around the support for their seat, uh, which leaves that in this game of musical chairs, uh, the competition between uh, Canada and Ireland. And you will have seen that during the pandemic, if you follow the foreign minister and the prime minister's Twitter feed, uh, lots of individual bilateral symmetry announcements of talking to leader of country X or foreign minister of country Y. Uh, and in those conversations, um, there, there's a lot of uh, negotiations around what the expectations would be uh, to secure votes toward that UN Security Council seat. It's become a major preoccupation for Canadian foreign policy, for diplomats, for ministers. Uh, and I'm not confident that that's been the best use of time. So that, that's the main issue for not doing this, is that it takes a great deal of time and energy. It takes focus away from what you're doing at home. And also, as you said, tempers, you have to temper the views of your views of how you, how you feel about everyone else at the table. That being said, is it not better to be at that table than not be at that table, as the prime minister would say? Listen, it's a great conversation to have on that point because <clears throat> you think about what can you actually accomplish in the interests of Canada and Canadians as a member of the UN Security Council. I have yet to hear a really tangible, specific way in which 
being at the table means we can be stronger allies to our democratic partners in the world, um, or that being around the table will help us shape world events. You know, the UN Security Council is comprised of five permanent members. Uh, and of those five permanent members, two, the United States and China, are in a fierce global competition uh, in a world reorder that we are amidst now. Um, for a country like Canada, where we can't be everywhere and do all things for all people, we have to prioritize what our interests are in the world. Um, and especially in the context of the changing global order, Canada must preserve its independence when it comes to its foreign policy priorities. Um, I, I think the inflection point is, to what point are we ready to distill our values at the expense of our interests? Because you cannot pursue both at the same time while pursuing a seat at the UN Security Council. Uh, I think it's come, uh, for example, even yesterday in the bilateral symmetry between Prime Minister Trudeau and India's Prime Minister Narendra Modi. It came at the expense of Canada giving a full-throated condemnation of Chinese aggression along the Indian-Chinese border. Uh, over the weekend, we saw the Canadian ambassador to the United Nations issue a letter to all countries of the world in which it was a race to the bottom in our alliance with Israel by pandering support around um, a Palestinian uh, refugee program called the United Nations Relief and Works Agency, an organization that has had huge internal issues of misogyny, abuse of money, corruption, and even worse, uh, being seen to, to send capital and resources to terrorist organizations like Hamas. Um, so to what point are we ready to distill our values for the sake of our interests? And I would argue that this is a table that does not serve Canada well, particularly for the resources that it has expended uh, both in capital and in energy to acquire the seat. So what is in this for Canada? Is this all about ego? I, you know, I don't know the prime minister personally, so it's very difficult for me to suggest that. But let me let me try and offer the benefit of the doubt. I think that there is a large part of the country that is steeped in the nostalgia of an era that is long gone, in which, um, you know, the idea of a prominent role in the United Nations, in peacekeeping, and in other virtuous ambitions uh, may have had an impact in a different era under a different order. Uh, my, my, my view is that holding on to the world for what, is, what it was doesn't acknowledge the realities of the world for what it is today. And if you're informing your foreign policy choices by that type of nostalgia rather than the realistic assessment of what our interests are in a very changed world today, then you are forsaking our national interests today uh, for the sake of a, a long-gone a long era, nostalgia over a long-gone era. So I, I, my, my sincere wish is for Canada to be successful, for the government to be successful. Uh, I just don't agree that a seat at the UN Security Council will bear much success for ordinary Canadians. Is this all about the money? If you're not going to contribute, then you move to the back of the line, and the two countries that are ahead of us have contributed more than Canada. Is that what this really comes down to, is a dollars and cents issue? Money is a big part of it, and it takes the form of you know development, international development investments in which Canadian taxpayer money goes to support uh, projects around the world. And I'm not saying that international development is not a useful priority. I actually think participating in international development is a really important priority for Canada, particularly when it is pitched to our economic partnerships in the world, uh, where Canadians and other partner countries in the developing world can benefit mutually. Uh, but there are only so many good partners that Canada could afford to invest in for the future. Uh, where this becomes very opaque are the bad partners. When I say bad partners, I'm talking about countries that are governed poorly, that don't have transparency, that have despotic leaders that marginalize sexual minorities or religious or ethnic minorities, um, that um, are partnered with countries like Russia or China in ways that uh, embody interests opposed to our own and to the wider West. It's that unsavory gray matter where, <clears throat> uh, you know, usually language of money or a handshake and a wink around a deal that is unsavory is, um, is, the, best, is the best path to acquire support. You'll recall the prime minister uh, you know, bowed before the Iranian regime uh, in a private meeting uh, only days after 170 Canadians were murdered on a Ukrainian flight departing Tehran to come back mm -hmm. to, to Canada through intermediary points. Like, that's the, it's, it's an unfortunate image, but it is the perfect type of image of what of what we are losing as a country in our 
and how we're allowing an organization like the UN to corrupt our own soul in the pursuit of um, uh, what I think is a largely cosmetic seat. So what factors are keeping us out? You know, uh, it's interesting to hear what conversations take place about Canada's place in the world. Uh, When you do a survey of most capitals around the world, whether it is uh, Canada's relationship with New Delhi, you know, large, growing, robust democracy, that's not a good relationship. Canada's relationship with Japan, uh, that's not a good relationship because Prime Minister Trudeau walked out on Shinzo Abe, his counterpart, in the midst of trade negotiations for the wider Trans-Pacific Partnership deal. Uh, You think about Canada's relationship with the United States, it's testy at best. Um, and that is an essential relationship. You think about Canada's relationship with most Western European capitals, I can't think of one that would think of what Canada thinks, or particularly what Prime Minister Trudeau thinks in the face of a global crisis. Um, you think about Canada's relationship with Beijing. You know, despite the best efforts of uh, Prime Minister Trudeau to have a good relationship with China, uh, I'm very, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm heartened that, you know, institutionally that has not become viable and that an increasing number of Canadians, uh, advisors in the bureaucracy, and perhaps even around the cabinet table are becoming aware of the strategic threat that China poses to Canada and to the international order. Um, you think about Canada's relationship in any country in the Americas, and you can't, you can't think of one place where this government has actually established a very good relationship. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I'm, I would say that because of the diplomacy of the last five years, our presence and influence in global affairs has diminished a great deal, and losing this is just going to be another expression of that. But Shuvaloy, I thought Canada was the envy of the world. I thought everyone loved our new young progressive prime minister. Uh, is he trying to be too many things to too many people? I mean, do you think Canadians have a different perception of what our per- the, the, the rest of the world perceives, us, how they perceive us on the world stage? You know, Canada, we are one of the oldest democracies in the world. And as a country, we are the envy of the world. We are the best country in the world, if I could be that unabashed, because of the strength of our society, our capacity to deal with issues, very thorny issues of reconciliation and integration. Um, Our banks, our agriculture sector, our mining sector, our people are the most envied people in the world. We have an incredible country. The issue isn't about Canada's standing in the world. It's about conflating party and personal interests with the country standing. And that's been my major issue with the prime minister since the beginning of the idea of him saying Canada is back. Canada was always there. We will always be there after Prime Minister Trudeau. The issue is that when you conflate Canada with the Liberal Party or specifically one prime minister, you diminish us all and you diminish the relationships that we should be having around the world to only a certain set of actors. And that's never healthy for our democracy. That's unhealthy for our country. Um, and, and I worry that, you know, the longer that this prime minister pursues that path, uh, the more conflated uh, the world will make Canada's reputation alongside his diminishing um, standing in the world. So who is standing by Canada on this vote? Who are our friends here? It's really difficult to discern that. I, um, I think that they're, the Canada has been able to, you know, recruit uh, some sensible uh, supporters, but we're never really going to know because, as you know, the vote today is not going to be on the floor of the UN General Assembly um, where permanent representatives, ambassadors are putting up their hands. It will be a socially distanced private ballot vote, which is the first time it's, it's going to be carried out this way. Um, and so, you know, the core constituencies for Canada are probably countries that uh, in, in which Canada is usually the number one or number two development investor. Um, there would be some traditional relationships in, in largely the West and in Europe that might work. But um, like I said, I think Norway and Ireland have, have done some effective things. Maybe I can say one comment about Ireland, um, and maybe I can be charitable to Canada on this and, and to the Prime Minister on this. One of the concerns I have about Ireland is that it is presently run by a government that is deeply anti-Semitic, when it comes to uh, the priorities of our friends and our allies, including Israel. Um, Every single day of the week, a Canadian diplomat would be superior to an Irish one around the U.S. Security Council, uh, particularly in a world that is growing increasingly anti-Semitic, increasingly anti-democratic. I could see um, a particularly unique value to have a Canadian voice there.
Uh, when will we find out what the what the results are? That's a great question. I'm I'm keeping I'm monitoring it obviously very closely today, as are my colleagues at the McDonald Laurie Institute. Um, our sense is that there's supposed to be announced results at uh, 3:30 Eastern to this afternoon. I'm not holding my breath. I expect that there could be some logistical issues associated with that. So, uh, you know, I think confidently we'll know today. Uh, I'm just not sure if we'll know in the afternoon or later in the evening. Uh, what happens if, uh, well, let's take both scenarios. What happens next if uh, we win or if we lose? Well, if we win, um, I believe that, you know, the prime minister will and his cabinet will, will spend the next two years um, running a victory lap in domestic constituencies in Canada, um, describing this marquee accomplishment as the symbol of how Canada is back, and probably not have to offer up any specific things that, you know, they intend to accomplish over the next couple of years through the seat, uh, and explain exactly how it is a direct benefit to the Canadian national interest. So that's that's what I think will characterize much of what happens in the next couple of years, that it will be used mostly for uh, a domestic constituency inside Canada. Uh, if we lose, uh, I think that there will be appropriate questions to the prime minister about the commitments that were made, about the campaign that was run, about the quality of his diplomacy. Um, and, uh, you know, it's a really, those will be really difficult questions that should the prime minister agree that, Canada ought to have a parliament, maybe the House of Commons would be able to deliberate on those issues more carefully. How much does China play into this decision for Canada, the two Michaels, the detainment of the Huawei CFO? How does that all play into this? I believe that's a great question, and thank you for it. I believe that much of uh, what we have seen in the last month, the very tempered, restrained, non-existent policy position that Canada has with respect to Beijing, in the face of so many threats to the international order and to the fact that, you know, it was a Beijing-created crisis that has effectively imprisoned so many people across the country in their homes over the last months, uh, run a palpable risk to overrun our healthcare system, and shut down our economy to the point where we will see massive economic consequences uh, this fall and into the next year. This was a Beijing-created issue. And not once did the prime minister or the cabinet really find the voice to call out Beijing alongside all of our allies um, for the issues that they have created uh, for the world. I believe much of that tempered language in one part is because of perhaps an ideological disposition of the prime minister, but more specifically was not to offend um, the Communist Party of China and the influence they exercise around the world, which is quite considerable, uh, in purely the context of the UN Security Council vote. I'm always surprised at how much of a priority the UN Security Council vote and campaign has taken across all aspects of Canadian foreign policy. It has been the overwhelming project and priority of this government since its arrival, and it has truly come at the expense of our country advancing the interests of our citizens, our industries, and our values. Uh, we certainly remember when the decision came down from the B.C. Supreme Court to continue on with the Huawei CFO's extradition trial uh, to the United States. Uh, it, it was evident that China thought that, that she was going to be released. They had a, uh, a sort of a victory lap photo op on the steps of the, of the B.C. Supreme Court the weekend before the decision finally came out. China said we, you know, they, they, they expressed... Uh, uh, that there was going to be very strong retaliation. Since then, we've been waiting for the other shoe to drop. Could this be it? This could be one part of a wider retaliation. I think that, so when China, what I've seen is that when China exercises threats, like the one that they, you just described, um, they don't do it multilaterally. They prefer to have individual engagements in which they are always the bigger partner. Outside of the United States, if China negotiates with China, with, with Canada one-on-one, -on -one, China is clearly the bigger partner. Or if China negotiates with um, South Africa, China is the bigger partner. Uh, it's when China has to negotiate with multilateral organizations uh, that their diplomats and the diplomacy issues away. Because that's not, that's not a position, that does not preserve a position of strength. So 
Uh, I think that what we have seen in terms of inspections being slapped around Canadian lumber for pests, which are usually completely specious and trumped up, uh, is an economic cost that they are imposing to Canada for on our lumber imports to the country, exports to the country. Um, I would say that's probably a more specific uh, example of how uh, China would exercise a retribution to um, the fact that the Canadian rule of law system and a Canadian judge uh, made an independent ruling. Uh, they, they're linking these issues with their, with their economic leverage in Canada. Shabaloy Majumdar has been with us, Senior Fellow and Program Director at McDonnell Laurier's Institute, sorry, Center for uh, Advancing Canada's Interest Abroad. Uh, Shabaloy, fascinating discussion. Thanks so much for the time. We'd love to have you back again. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. COVID-19 pretty much uh, occupied all of our time uh, for the last uh, 14 weeks. And lots of chatter about a vaccination and how life will really be very similar to what we're experiencing now until a vaccination is, in fact, available. How long is that going to take? We've heard as much as a year, uh, even beyond that. Let's bring in Byram Verdi, Ph.D., Associate Professor, Department of, uh, of Pathobiology, University of Guelph, and is with us now. Byram, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hope you're doing well. Uh, yes, I am. Thanks for having me. We certainly hear conflicting reports about a vaccination. Obviously, this is top of mind, and there's a lot of people working on this. Uh, in, in your best guesstimate, when do you think we will see a vaccination? Not in time to help with this pandemic, is the short answer. So we often see uh, vaccination for the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the traditional flu that comes out, the seasonal flu that comes out every year, and we hear of a new one of those every year. Are those as well years in the making, or is it just a, a readaptation of the one from the previous year? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, a lot of people have been using the, the example of the influenza vaccine and misinterpreting that to think that it is uh, really quite feasible. Now, I want to point out, I'm not saying it's impossible for us to have a, uh, a vaccine for COVID-19 in time to make a difference, but I, find, I think it's highly improbable. But getting back to what you asked, it was very important. The, indeed, the annual flu vaccine is remanufactured each year. So that means technically we have a brand new uh, flu vaccine being made in under one year in order for it to be ready for the next flu season. However, there's a huge difference between uh, what we're trying to accomplish right now with a COVID-19 vaccine and the flu vaccine that gets manufactured in less than a year. And the difference is we have a, uh, a vetted, like in other words, um, uh, a vaccine technology that has been uh, tested and proven and, uh, and approved for use in humans uh, for years now. And so what we're doing with the flu vaccine is we're taking an approved method now and tweaking it each year to adjust for the new strains of the flu virus that come out. But what one has to, what, where the equivalent comparison is, is when the, flu, when the technology for the flu vaccine was first developed. That took many years. And that's where we're at with the COVID-19 vaccines. We do not have a vaccine for coronaviruses. Right? We've had 17 years since the original SARS coronavirus outbreak. And then since then, we've also had the MERS coronavirus. Um, so that means we've had 17 years to develop a coronavirus vaccine, and we have failed to do so. So that technology still has to be manufactured. So where I think the benefit is going to come, actually, from this current vaccine push is we will eventually have COVID-19 vaccines, realistically. And I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but I just want to be very honest with the general public. Uh, from a scientific perspective, I don't think chances are great that we're going to have one ready to help with this pandemic. But I think if we s stick to the program and funding agencies continue to fund this work beyond COVID-19, and we don't forget about it like we did after SARS coronavirus and MERS coronavirus, we'll have a vaccine in the future, a platform, a technology that in the future can be rapidly adapted for the next coronavirus, you know, for example, the SARS coronavirus 3 that we might encounter sometime in the future.
So um, why, as you said, many years since SARS, uh, we were supposed to learn a lot from that. That was the first, I guess, uh, coronavirus that that, uh, that that got the exposure that that uh, that the latest have. Should we have had? Should we have a vaccine, a vaccination for this by now? Considering how long ago SARS was. Uh, yes. So that just tells you how much how hard it is. <laughs> And, is it about it being why, hard or enough? Was it? Is it about it's it's too, it's so difficult or not enough attention or resources have been put towards it? Those are great questions. I just say it's a combination of everything. So it it is it just simply it simply takes that long to try and come up with solutions. And often you know we come up with our best ideas and they fail, and so we have to go back to the drawing board. So it, that's one of the reasons why it can take a long time. But you're also correct. So one of the problems that uh, that we have often when it comes to uh, funding science in Canada is uh, we often follow, you know, the trends, right, or, or, or uh, tend to jump on the bandwagon, so to speak, right? And what happens is once the problem is gone, we kind of forget about it, we, we, and, and the problem kind of gets neglected. So after the first SARS coronavirus outbreak, there's no question that part of the issue was, you know, funding agencies then kind of viewed the research as, as researchers tried to continue with it as being a relatively low priority because the problem was solved. Now I'm hoping we're going to learn uh, a hard lesson here, and uh, scientists and funding agencies alike now have to remain committed to this path that we are on. So even though we might not have a vaccine in time to help out now, if we let this slide as well, when this pandemic is over, if we say the pandemic's over, we no longer need to try and rush to get a COVID-19 vaccine, uh, we don't want to be in a position where we're now exposed to the SARS coronavirus three at some point in the future and still don't have a coronavirus vaccine. Uh, so uh, a coronavirus vaccine is very much different, uh, a different platform than uh, the traditional annual flu vaccine. Once we do come up with this vaccine for this coronavirus, would something like that be part of the annual flu shot or would that be a different situation a different shot a different category uh yes so yeah another great question so a lot of the coronaviruses aren't dangerous so no i don't see it being something that would be incorporated into uh, an annual vaccination strategy i i see it being something that would be implemented if we encounter one of these rare dangerous strains of the coronavirus only the the influenza virus remains a danger year to year and that's why we have to have the annual flu vaccine but to put in perspective, most of the coronaviruses um, don't cause major disease. Uh, will there be more interest in flu shots as a result of this, or is it something different? The, well, that's interesting. Well, one of the things I hope come from this uh, in general, uh, for example, all the physical distancing that we're doing, I'm hoping that people will be more aware of uh, issues like the annual flu. Now, the interesting thing, the science is starting to tell us, starting to suggest, and this is a little humbling when we look at how much, how many resources we're putting into COVID-19 right now, as we're starting to get more people tested, we're finding that the number of people who, who would technically fall under the category of cases of, of infection uh, is much higher than what we originally were led to believe. In other words, there's a lot of people who have been infected with the virus who either suffered minor disease or even no disease at all. They didn't even realize they were infected. And so as that number grows, what we're finding is the, the fatality rate associated with this virus is continually creeping down to the point where it's starting to, you know, a lot of scientists are starting to wonder if it's going to get into the ballpark of the uh, average influenza vaccine. Um, and, and so you, ha- you make a great point. Uh, the annual flu vaccine is important. There is a fundamental difference, though. The reason why we have to have the flu vaccine each year is because that, the influenza virus mutates so quickly. And that's why, so a, a year later, the, the, the flu virus has changed enough that it's essentially like a new virus. And that's why we have to be vaccinated. And so, in fact, those vaccines, because the virus is constantly mutating and we're constantly making the virus from a, a historical strain, those vaccines are actually only about 50% effective. So that type of vaccine, you want, you, we need a vaccine that's going to be far more than 50% effective against COVID-19, right? We need to be able to get at least 70%, and some scientists estimate perhaps as many as 85% of people immune to this virus in order to end the pandemic. Uh, what about if this virus keeps mutating like a flu would? 
Yeah, that's a great question. And there's a lot of research being done into that. And there's no question this virus also mutates. I mean, that's exactly why we have yeah. this. SARS coronavirus 2. And we, and we saw so the original SARS coronavirus, we ended up with the MERS coronavirus, now this one. So this virus does mutate, and that's a legitimate concern. And that's why we have to remain vigilant for the future, because it's, it's not a question of will there be a SARS coronavirus 3. It's a question of how long will it be. And hopefully it'll be a very, very long time before we see that. Um, but the good news on that front is the, 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 this coronavirus mutates uh, much slower than an influenza virus. How concerned are you of a second wave? I, I think a second, because of the uh, strict physical distancing that we have had in place, um, there almost certainly will be a, a second wave, right, as, as those restrictions are eased up on. Um, that's inevitable because so much of our population right now is, is not immune. Um, but okay. again, I... I so, so that's to be expected. Uh, what uh, what I would have to say about that, though, is I, I'm it's that's the natural consequence of, of getting back to uh, you know and, and loosening up the, the physical distancing. It's not. Uh, I guess we're not going. To, I'm not. I'm not overly concerned about that um, because again, what I want to point out is we need to make sure that the elderly are protected. There's no question that the mortality rate is. Uh, is far too high and people above 65 years of age. But below that, what we have to keep in mind is this uh, actually is starting to look like it's similar to the flu. And we certainly don't react this way every year when there's the uh, the annual flu season. So yes, there'll be um, uh, an increase in cases, but I personally am not overly concerned about that. Uh, COVID-19, having this and living through this pandemic, plus expecting another flu season in the fall. Are you concerned about that? And again, when this started, many compared it to the flu. Uh, I think it was, what, between 6,500 and 7,000 people, I guess, uh, die from the flu in Canada, a traditional flu every year. We're up Mm -hmm. over 8,000 now uh, with with, uh, COVID-19. How concerned concerned are you with the two of these together, uh, a flu season plus a pandemic? Yeah, so that's I, I, there's the possibility, I guess, that like so co-infections are a possibility, which could mean that um, if somebody were to get infected just with the coronavirus, uh, it might not necessarily be all that severe, the disease they get, and vice versa, if they get infected with just the influenza virus, that might not be overly severe, but the two combined in the same individual could make for a, a potentially uh, very dangerous combination. But again, that, that should be uh, a relatively rare problem. Um, and again, I, I'm starting to lean towards the, the, so again, and people that are under 65, again, I just like to highlight, uh, I still think that the annual flu represents a greater danger uh, to most Canadians, especially if you look at our youngest, right? We don't have, we have a very limited number of cases in children in Canada and no deaths. Um, whereas we do have uh, many more cases in children from the annual flu right. and many more deaths. So the flu, I think, is more dangerous. The two in combination uh, in some people could certainly be more dangerous than either one alone. Uh, Byram uh, Bridal has been with us, Associate Professor, Department of Pathobiology, University of Guelph. Byram, thanks so much for the insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Uh, Thank you. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.